You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. So we're going to be in Galatians chapter 2. And today, um, we're focusing on how I believe, you know, the secular has affected the church, of all things. And that what's going on in the United States and in our culture is much more churchianity than Christianity. Okay? Churchianity is kind of like an escalator that you get on and you keep trying to get towards the top. Um, But it's probably running backwards and you have to sprint to get up the escalator. Have you ever done that before? That you've tried to get up an escalator that's going down? I'm sure you have, Hunter. (laughs) And did you knock a bunch of people out of the way when you did it? Um, Um, Relatively (laughs) unpopular. Yeah, 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 Okay. Well, it might be fun to do, but it can be exhausting. So we've been looking at um, how um, other things in our culture have turned from the sacred to the secular and how the secular has become sacred. And like I've talked about romance, you could, we could have done it on technology. We could have done it on um, the leisure world that we have gotten into, on food, on um, you name it. It's anything to try to fill us with what um, you might say is enoughness trying to feel like I'm enough, that I matter, I'm valued. Do I have enough? Have I had enough? And you can see people in our society on pilgrimages and quests to be enough and to have enough and even to say they are enough. And sometimes we just try to convince us that we're enough. And if I talk to myself enough about being enough, maybe I'll believe it for the first time. And the only way you're going to ever have it is when God is your enough and God speaks over you that word that says you are enough, you are mine. That is enough. That's what we're getting at today. So we're going to look at Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 21. You can follow along in the U version of the Bible and the notes are online. You got them, Kathy? Absolutely. Absolutely. And if you want to know how to do that, you can talk to Kathy. She gets it. Okay. But let's, let's read this right now. But when Cephas came to Antioch, now Cephas is another name for Peter, by the way, okay? So he's one of the 12. Um, I opposed him to his face because he had stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. 
For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. So today, this is our last seculus piece, the seculus nature of the church. Okay? And we're going to look at these three different aspects of this passage, okay? And that is first differentiating Christianity from churchianity. That was happening all the way back in Galatia as well and in Antioch with Peter. Secondly, the heartbeat of what Christianity is. And then finally, the implications of Christianity, okay? So differentiating Christianity from churchianity, now, I love this culture that we have in the United States. It's very freeing. It's very expressive. We have many opportunities, and we have a smorgasbord of religious options before us. And everything about here, the Christian church, is voluntary, right? You didn't have to get up this morning to come here. And a lot of people aren't. And so what churches are doing, because it's such a voluntary association, is they're trying to attract a crowd in order to get them at a church. And to do that, you have to market to the consumer needs of individuals. And you know what happens? The church becomes often a knockoff, a one-off, a facsimile of what Jesus intended it to be. Okay? So churches are focused, a lot of them, on self-improvement. Now, that sounds good, doesn't it? Right? And, um, or personal transformation, that also sounds good. Or societal or community transformation also sounds good. But the real core to what they're saying is that you need to be on that escalator and getting higher up and higher up, and we are the way to get you to the top. It's an upwardly mobile idea. And people join churches where they feel like, hey, this is one step above my social standing in the society. People are sort of like me, and I can just keep going up the ladder with this church. We use church to gain what we call the good life, whatever that is. Okay? Jesus, on the other hand, the arc of his entire life is what Henry Nouwen once said is it was downwardly mobile, not upwardly mobile. Now, you ask your neighbors, you know, you can ask anybody in your community uh, what the good life is. And they'll probably define it as having good health, having great friends, having financial security, enjoying uh, numerous trips and experiences and vacations, having a good, successful job, accumulating things and stuff. Right? Yeah. And becoming financially secure and independent. You ask Jesus what the good life is, and he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the peacemakers. Isn't that interesting? That's the good life, he says. Congratulations, you have it. 
Our culture prides itself and pushes for you to be made a uh, self-made individual and independent from any needs from anyone else. And Jesus turns around and says, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, you've got to be as dependent as a little child to get in. Totally, utterly dependent, and God needs to remake you. You must be born again. Most of American Christianity really looks more like a self-help advice column rather than that grace-based, divinely miraculous good news Jesus Christ came to offer and he died to accomplish. So churches tend to turn into, in our day and age, saying this stuff and it becomes a country club mentality. Now, this isn't the first time this has happened. In fact, I, I'm going to pop back 500-ish years ago into the time of what's called the Reformation in the church. And the reformers of that day and age were looking around at the wealth and the power and the political chutzpah the church had in its society and the whole commingling of everything together. And they said, something is wrong here. There's more churchianity going on than Christianity. Jesus and the cross were kind of a historical end point. Boom, it was back then. It's historically true, but we're moving on and getting you on that escalator, and you've got to go through these hoops and steps up this ladder to finally gain what you've, uh, to be enough so you are pleasing to God. Graham Tomlin wrote a book called The Power of the Cross, and in it he talks about the time of the Reformation and how the reformers at that time, way back then, looked at it and said, huh, something's wrong here. He said this, the peace, the wealth, and the security enjoyed by the church are signs not of its success, but of its demise. The church is in its greatest danger when it is rich, well-fed, and powerful, and most blessed when it is poor, persecuted, and tempted. And boy, do I want to disagree with that. <laughs> I really do. I don't like that. And yet, I have to admit that that's true. You can go a lot farther back. We're going back to the time when Paul wrote the book of Galatians and to a time that he refers to in our reading today when Peter arrives in Antioch. Antioch was the first Gentile church. You can read about it, by the way. I didn't put this in the notes or anything. In Acts chapter 13, where when um, in, uh, in Christianity, when the uh, Christians in Jerusalem became, uh, became persecuted, they scattered. The disciples, the 12 apostles stayed behind. But all the Christians left, and some of them traveled to Antioch, where they just naturally began to share the gospel with Gentile people from all different nations that were gathered in that town. And this is the first place, Antioch, where the church, the people in the Christian movement were called Christians because they didn't know what else to call them. Because in religion in that day was based on your ethnicity. If you're Jewish, you're Jewish, right? If you're Roman, you were following the Roman gods. If you are Greek, you're following probably the Greek gods. If you're from Egypt, you are following Osiris or Isis, or you're Egyptian, you're a Samaritan. You're, you know, and it was based on a lot. And all of a sudden, we've got people from all these different ethnicities believing in the same thing. What do we call them? We're going to have to call them little Christs. 
Christians, Christ-likeness, because they didn't have anything else to call. Isn't that great? That's what we're hoping the church always looks like, because that's what it is. It's based on grace, not race, right? So Peter comes to Antioch, and Peter had learned, you know, from Jesus, so you'd think he'd get it. And he gets to Antioch, and he was affected by churchianity when some people from James, some of the circumcision party, so there was this disagreement on how do you handle all of the Old Testament laws now that Jesus came? What does this all mean? And the circumcision party came, and they basically said, well, you know, if you really want to be a follower of Jesus, he was Jewish, and you need to do all the stuff that we've always done. You just add Jesus into the mix of it. And Peter started going like, huh, I don't know. And he steps back from being with the Gentiles, even though he had eaten with them for weeks. And he didn't understand the implications of the gospel. Peter, the rock, as you know. Peter, one of the three that Jesus depended on so often. Peter, the one that Jesus, in fact, commissioned and said, feed my sheep, feed my lambs, feed my sheep, three times after he had denied him three times. Peter is the one who turns around and doesn't get it. Isn't it? What's comforting about all this is like, okay, if Peter didn't get it, I don't have to get it either. <laughs> I can mess up. You know, like uh, we've said many times, there's only one hero in all the Bible is Jesus. The rest of them, we're all kind of like Keystone Cops bumbling along, not getting it. And if you don't know what Keystone Cops are, um, <laughs> who can we use that would be similar to Keystone Cops for people? The three, well, that's still back then. <laughs> I don't know what's current. I don't know. Um, just, you know. People, you know, they just don't get it, right? We don't get it. Jesus still uses us. It's amazing. So Paul comes and he confronts Peter. And you know what's great about what, how Paul confronts Peter, by the way, is that he doesn't go to him and say, Paul, you're being a racist. <laughs> Stop that. You know, you're not supposed to. He was being racist. But what Peter says, you can look back in 2 Corinthians or, or Galatians 2, where he says, Peter, wait a minute. This is the gospel. Your, at, your, your actions aren't in line with the gospel. Remember what the gospel is. That's the difference between Christianity and churchianity. That's why we were called Christians here and not this or that or the other thing. So when I'm talking about secularity in the church or seculist churches, I'm really talking about churches that have substituted something for the gospel. Churches are focused on good advice, you know, how to improve, how to get, and on right here and now. Good advice is not good news. Did you get that? Good advice is not good news. David Zoll says this in his uh, book called Seculosity, Christianity is a means to an earthly end almost a way of using God to fix the world or yourself. To borrow a fancy phrase, Jesus land Christianity operates squarely within the imminent frame removed from the transcendent realities that have defined the faith throughout the millennia. Eventually, one starts to wonder if our near myopic focus on this life masks a faltering confidence in the one to come. 
So we use Christianity to get what we want. Okay? Preachers, by the way, you know what we want? Influence. And so we use our messages and everything to gain more members, to get more influence, and to get a book deal. (laughs) (laughs) It's never going to happen. Okay. Um, Churches want members and money. We all want significance. We all want value. And we get it by trying to get people to come and to join us. And it's not even the real thing. Our churches become like mall stores with spiritual products. And each church is trying to outdo the, the next one in order to get and say, hey, you know what? And the subtext becomes, and I've said this before, in the churches, look at how great we are as a church. And if you really want to have significance and value and greatness in your life, you join with us, and then you're a part of our team, and you're better than and much greater than. That's exactly what was going on with the circumcision party. They were saying, look at us. We're keeping the real rules. Those Gentiles, you know, yeah, they might be in, but they're second class. If you really want to be spiritual, if you really want to be pleasing to God, if you really want, then you live like we do. Look at how special we are. That's what the difference between churchianity and Christianity is. So what's the heartbeat? We're going to look at this. That's the next point. Paul said this in Galatians 2.16, yet we know a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus. In order that to be justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So the heartbeat of the church is the gospel. And another word for that is this wonderful word, justified or justification. It means that you have a right relationship. You are just or righteous before God because of what God has done for you. And Paul says this is the way things work. There's an order to things. Paul didn't throw out the law altogether and say, don't don't have to do any of this stuff at all, ever. It doesn't matter anymore. Live whatever way you want. You're justified. That's not what he says. But there is an order to things. And the Judaizers, or the party of the circumcision, were saying this is the order. One, you believe in Jesus Christ. Two, you now obey the laws. All of them. 613, by the way, not 10. All the kosher food laws, everything, and keep doing that. And then God will see you, be pleased with you, and save you. That's churchianity in one form or another. Do this, then do this, and then. And Paul says this is the order. Believe in Jesus Christ. You are pleasing to God, and you are saved. And now, live out that gospel by how you love and serve one another, and you obey the intent and purpose of the laws freely. Do you get the difference between those two? They are totally different. Totally different. Because if you obey just because that way you're going to get blessed by God, if you do these things in order to get blessed then your obedience is always anxious because you're always wondering, is it good enough to get the blessings? It's also very selfish because you're only doing it to get something. 
And thirdly, it's a joyless burden and it's exhausting. It's trying to go up that escalator that never seems to end and you have more and more rungs to climb and you keep going up, you take a break and all of a sudden you find yourself at the bottom and you keep rushing back up the escalator. But if you're, you obey because you already have it in Jesus Christ, you obey for a totally different reason. Because you have been given it all, your heart is full, you are giving thanks to God for everything that he's already done for you. By the way, you know what that means? Jesus came down the escalator. His life was downwardly mobile. He descends to the lowest depths of this world, not just being human, but being a servant of sinful humanity. So he meets you right where you are. You don't have to climb anywhere. You don't have to go anywhere. He comes right where you are. Isn't that amazing? That's the gospel. And that's a gospel breakthrough in your life when you understand the order of things. So one of the reformers who had that breakthrough was Martin Luther. And he was commenting on the book of Galatians. This passage, and this is what he said. As a monk, I led an irreproachable life. Nevertheless, I felt that I was a sinner before God. He never seemed to get up that escalator. My conscience was restless, and I could not depend on God being propitiated by my satisfactions. Big words, I know, but he's basically saying everything I did wasn't enough. I never got enoughness. Not only did I not love, but I actually hated the righteous God. Day and night, I tried to meditate upon the significance of these words. The righteousness of God is revealed in it as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Then finally, God had mercy on me, and I began to understand that the righteousness of God is a gift of God by which a righteous man lives, namely faith. And that sentence, the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel, is passive, indicating that the merciful God justifies us by faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now I felt as though I had been reborn altogether and entered paradise. Did you get that? Isn't it marvelous? He realized Jesus had come down to him. He didn't have to go up to, to God to be pleasing to God. Totally different. Totally different between churchianity and Christianity. So what are the implications of this? Now, if you happen to have the misfortune, if Paul were here today and you had the misfortune of having him talk with you. Because honestly, in some ways, I'd love to have Paul talk with me, but in other ways, I don't want him to look at my life. Do you understand what I mean by that? If he dressed down Peter, yeah. Um, I'm wondering, would he look at your life? Would he look at my life and say, John, you got it all up here. You know the facts, but somehow it hasn't sunk into here and out into here. You don't get the implications of the gospel. Timothy Keller, he said it this way, the gospel for most people is like a coin in a vending machine that hasn't dropped yet. They got it, but it hasn't sunk in and the payoff hasn't happened in their lives. Now, why do, um, how does that work? Okay. In 2015, um, Tony Schwartz wrote an op-ed piece in the New York Times, and it was entitled, The Enduring Hunt for Personal Value. Hear that title? The Enduring Hunt for Personal Value. Always trying to find enoughness. 
And this is what he wrote. After he uh, talks about a number of different people, he says, as little as these very people have in common, their shared core hunger is for value. Once our basic needs are met, we human beings arguably crave value above all else. We each want desperately to matter to feel a sense of worthiness. And so people hunger for value. And that's what's behind the whole second, whether it's in the job and I've got value for my job because look at how good I'm doing my job, to a romantic relationship, to um, how many likes I get on Facebook or Instagram, or how my grade point average in school, or how many friends I have, or how many things I've filled my life with, or how everybody thinks I'm moral and up good and wonderful and what my reputation is like. Whatever it is, we're always hunting for value. Why? Because we don't believe we are that valuable. Because I know what my life looks like, and I have trashed people, and I've trashed me many times. I've misused my life. How can I have value? I know all the garbage that I've got and all the decay. It's called sin. And so it's hard to find value in yourself, but we keep hunting for it. And some people, go, and then in the church, it's like questioning, well, wait a minute now, if you really want to be pleasing to God, you will send in $100 to the Do you understand? Those are some of the schemes that happen even within the church, and it's secular. That has nothing to do with the gospel. So Peter falls within the circumcision group because he started to quest the value of what other people thought of him because somehow the penny hadn't dropped for Peter, and he understood that his value was already found in Jesus Christ and him alone. Oh, yes, they were all glad that Gentiles were following Jesus now, but that was, they also knew they were better because they were, you know, the real Christians. Whenever you see in any church where there's kind of a distinction between first and second class Christians in any form, you know, seculus has taken over. Here's the reality again. Here's the reality again. You, you are valued. You are loved. You are forgiven. You are redeemed. You are righteous. You are declared that. And it's all from outside of you, from God himself, who loves you so much, he gives you everything that you'd ever want and ever need in terms of value or worth or significance, or meaning, or purpose, or anything else you're questioning, you will never find it anywhere else. You find it in Jesus and him alone. And the cross is where this all takes place. And it's not, the cross is not some historical marker 2,000 years ago that says, okay, there it was, it happened. It's not a historical event only. It's not just a memory. It's not just an incidental thing. The cross is alive and well and extensionally true for you and for me in such a way that Paul himself would say, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 
In other words, do you understand what Paul is saying is that when Jesus died on the cross, you died there too. In fact, all your attempts to find your enoughness, whatever they are, your value, trying to justify who you are and why you're here, they all die at that cross too. They're no more. They're finished. They never worked. They don't even need to be tried anymore. You don't need to. Instead, it is fully accomplished for you. You're given the life of Jesus himself, his righteous record. And you are loved. You are valued. You are saved, justified, and you will be glorified. Isn't that an amazing thing? So the gospel is not a first step and then you move on to the real thing. The gospel is the real thing. You never get away from it. Christianity is not about um, trying to, to... to finally get back to keeping certain rules and laws in order to get pleasing to God, Christianity is finally letting that penny drop and realizing how pleasing to God you already are and then living out of the joy and the freedom that that brings by serving others and glorifying God. And you start to know that the implications of the gospel are really coming home in your life when you no longer keep looking around to try to grab onto that next thing for your enoughness, whatever it happens to be. When you start looking at other people and saying, oh my goodness, why are they chasing after all of these things? And you're not like judging them, but you're just yearning for them to understand the mercy and grace of God, that they have everything they need in Jesus Christ and he will freely give it to them. When you can come to terms with your own failings and foibles and mistakes and sinfulness, and when you can accept God's grace and forgiveness for that, so that you are so overwhelmed by that that you don't even have to worry about any of those things anymore, you know you're getting what the gospel means. That you're not needing to berate yourself or correct yourself or judge yourself or criticize yourself or goad yourself anymore. But where you don't care what you think about yourself, but only what God thinks of you and says of you. Where your insecurities start to fade, not because you've gotten your act together, (laughs) but because Jesus Christ is more and more what you're about so that you can say with Paul, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. There's nothing you need more than the gospel. And my prayer is that we as Thrive, we as individuals and as a community are all about that gospel in such a way the penny drops for more and more people. And they, quote, get it, or better yet, they're gotten, they're had, they're welcomed, they're incorporated, they're loved, they're received, they're reconciled. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, you are our enough. You're more than enough. You work exceeding and abundantly beyond all we can ask or imagine. There is No way 
we can find anything, anyone, any idea out that would ever give us what you have already freely given us. Forgive us, Lord, for the ways that we still are living in that old thoughts, that secular way of trying to gain our enoughness outside of you. Help us to rest alone in you, to receive everything from you, and to live in the joy of that for others. We pray, Lord God, that if anyone here is still wondering what that gospel is, that that it just sounds like a piece of information, that, Holy Spirit, you would bring it home into their hearts, that they just like how uh, Martin Luther said, the gates of heaven are open to them, and they feel like they've entered paradise. Give us that, Lord, because we know that's why you came. So bless us, Lord, now as we are preparing our hearts and our minds uh, to uh, worship you in our tithes and offerings and give uh, ourselves to you in that way. Bless us, Lord, as we prepare our hearts in our lives to receive you as you come to us in the Lord's Supper, where your body, your blood, you say you give to us freely. We thank you for that, Lord. Help us to believe and trust your word, to um, receive all that you are, that you are, are enough. All this we pray, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen. Amen.